Oh, please join with me in prayer. Father, it is, um, again, our desire as people who so often um, lose sight of you. Uh, we are people who can forget. We fall asleep. And so we ask even now um, that your word would awaken us to the reality not only of who you are, but of the reality of Christ's coming again, that we would be a people utterly shaped by that truth in every way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are called to be Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world. And in Matthew, we have the blueprints for how to do this. We've seen this in the last few weeks. Sermon on the Mount speaks of how Christ's beautiful church is one that has a deep kingdom-shaped in integrity. Um, chapter 10 talks about how this community is a community that is on mission, seeking the world to know Christ. Chapter 13 speaks of how we are to have this humble hopefulness as we do this mission. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, chapter 18 speaks of how in this community that Christ is building, everyone sees each other as incredibly important. This Sunday, we get to the, the last of these five blueprint sections in Matthew. And what Jesus says to us here is that his beautiful community, his beautiful church is a church whose lives are oriented around his coming again. We, we in just, just before where our passage started, if we were to back up just a few verses, we would see Jesus telling his disciples and us of the day that he will return, of the day that he will come back into this world in his body, in his flesh, but not as he did before as a baby, but as a glorious king. It says all the world will see him as he returns. He will send his angels out, it says, with trumpets calling his own. People in China and people in Africa and people in Hinsdale, the angels will come and call us to Jesus. And it says those who do not know him will mourn and those who do know him will rejoice. And in that moment when he comes back, the world as we know it will be over and a new glorious life will begin. Jesus says this is happening. And and. Here in our passage, the repeated refrain is, in light of this reality that I am coming again, be ready. Three different times we have some variation of that command. So, so in verse 42, uh, when you have right, right at the very, uh, let's see, 44, therefore you must also be ready. Or verse 42, therefore stay awake. Or at the very end of our passage, verse 13, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Again and again, the calling is, be ready. Be ready. Be ready for my return. Christ's beautiful church is a church that is oriented towards that fact that he is coming again. So, I want to just start by asking us kind of a gut check question. How does the idea of Christ's return affect you? What emotional relationship do you have to, to what I'm saying right now about Jesus returning one day? Is this something that you feel like is a really present reality for you that's constantly shaping how you view things? Or is it something that just feels really kind of distant and remote and unreal? 
Is the idea of Jesus' return something that, that excites you, that fills you with longing? Or is it something that, that frightens you? When I was uh, a kid, the idea of Jesus' return, honestly, I think kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, I don't think I like, it felt to me like whenever he came, anything interesting would be over. Like, and, and I wanted, I wanted to marry, I wanted to get a job, I wanted to go to college, all these cool things. And so I was kind of worried about Jesus' return. And actually, when I came across this passage, I thought I'd found a loophole. So I don't know if you noticed at the very beginning, it talks about no one will know the day or the hour of Jesus' return. So I thought about that. And so sometimes in the morning, I would say to myself, today is the day that Jesus is going to come back. And I tried to make myself convinced, because here's the thing. If I knew that Jesus was coming back today, he couldn't come back that day. Because no one knows the day that Jesus will return. And I did that for a while. I mean, you can wonder whether it worked or not. I mean, he hasn't come back. I'm pretty sure that's not the reason. But obviously, there's a silliness about that day after day. Today, Jesus is coming back. But... You know, I wonder now, I mean, now I've definitely changed my relationship to this idea. It's no longer something I dread. It's something that at least at certain times I long for. I pray, come Lord Jesus. But I do wonder if my life would actually be healthier if I still was doing that every day, saying today, today is the day that Jesus is coming back. Because the reality is, and this is something that grieves me, as I've been thinking about this passage, I've realized that this truth that this world has a destination. That Jesus is coming back and that will change everything. This truth is something that I, I feel kind of remotely. As it's unreal. I'm, I'm not sure how much it actually shapes the way that I live. And I wonder if that's true for you as well. As we live in our affluent western suburbs... Constantly beset by busyness and promises of the good life now, how much are we actually shaped by? How much are we oriented towards the idea of Jesus coming back? I, I wonder of the five things that I've mentioned, if this is actually the hardest one for us, to be a community that is oriented towards Jesus' coming again. It's important for us to think to talk about this, because Jesus says not only is this something that marks his community as beautiful, it also is something that makes his community wise. Perhaps you noticed when, when we get to this middle section where Jesus is contrasting the two servants, the one who lives for his master's return is described as the wise servant. When we contrast the five foolish and the five wise virgins, what makes the wise ones wise is that they are ready for his return. There is a wisdom element. Jesus is saying that you are blessed. You will live better if you live with an orientation of the fact that I am coming back. Which makes sense because we always live more wisely if we know where our life is going. And so let me ask again... How much does Jesus' return actually shape you when you are thinking of the next day, when you're planning for the next week or month, when you are dreaming for your family or for yourself over the next years? Does the coming of Jesus even enter into your considerations as something you think might happen? Jesus, I think, even here addresses some of the reasons that it's hard for us to have that mindset. So I think one of the things that makes it difficult for us to be oriented in this way is the fact that 
there is nothing right now around us that makes us feel like it's about to happen, that Jesus is about. It's not like today we wake up and say, oh, I see the signs. I think today is the Jesus day. We don't, we don't see omens, harbingers, anticipations of Jesus' coming. And, and that's not the way big things often are. We think about, like, today is what? Super Bowl Sunday. How many things have been, t- uh, like, told to us in the last couple of weeks in the news about the Super Bowl is coming? There's all of this hype. There's all this amping up. When the presidential election happened, it felt like 17 years of anticipation for that. All of these big events, there's all this buildup. And so I think intuitively, we feel the same way about with Jesus, that before Jesus comes, of course there will be buildup. Of course there will be signs. And Jesus says, that's not actually how it will be. He says, when I come, it's going to be like a thief coming in the night. I mean, think, how does a thief come? A thief does not, two days ahead of time, send a telegram, dear so-and-so, just want you to know that I will be embarking upon your glorious presence, you know, residence in, in two days' time at around 10 p.m. Please leave out snacks. I mean, there's, there's not that kind of anticipation. A thief does not give any warning. He just comes. And Jesus says, that's how it's me. There's not going to be things that will show you that I'm about to come before I come. He says, think about the days of Noah. The days of Noah, what were people doing as Noah was building this ark They weren't thinking, oh, life is about to end. They were eating, drinking. They were making plans for weddings that would happen in a few weeks. Nothing felt like things were going to change. It's not like for six months there was this ominous flood warning. And then then everything did change in a moment. And Jesus says, that's how it's going to be for me. You, You should not be expecting all these signs. You should realize that when I come, it will come without any warning. Jesus could come today. But I think one of the reasons it's hard for us to believe that is not just what I said, that we don't see anything that tells us it's about to happen, but because it's just been so long. I mean, it's 2,000 years of the church waiting, believing Jesus could come. But the good news is even here, Jesus addresses that. Did you notice when, the, when you have these parable of the, the ten virgins, and we'll be talking about this, the five wise ones were the ones who were ready for it to take longer than they expected. Or when we have this story of the two servants, the foolish servant is the one who says, my master is delayed, and so he starts just acting as if the master is never going to come back. And we understand that. Sometimes if it's day after day and it still hasn't happened, we start wondering maybe it will Never happen. And Jesus is actually warning us. He's saying that's how it's going to feel. It's going to seem like it's taking too long. But don't be confused. Don't be confused in thinking that the delay means it's not going to happen. This is the way it will be. Jesus is, is addressing these temptations to, to move this idea of Jesus' return to the, to the periphery by saying, don't be confused. Just because there is no warning doesn't mean I'm not going to come. Just because it's been delayed doesn't mean I'm not going to come. I am coming, and I will come in a moment. And I want you to be ready. So as I have been thinking about this, this is the question that I have been pondering because it's very, I mean, this passage doesn't have an issue of not being clear in terms of what Jesus is calling us to. Three different times, be awake, be ready, be awake, be ready. He is saying we will be wise, we will be right if we have our lives shaped on this expectation that someday Jesus will return. And, And what I've been asking is how can we be more like that? 
it. And I don't think it's just like, you know, we turn on switch and tomorrow we just are like so completely focused on it. I, I suspect it's more of something we cultivate, a, a growing awareness and longing so that our lives more and more are shaped by this reality of Christ's return. And in our passage, I think we actually see three instructions that Jesus gives us to help us to, to cultivate this focus on Christ's return. And that is where we're being told to stay awake, we're being told to practice resurrection, and we need to keep it sustainable. We're being told to stay awake. You know, as I said, you see that in verse 42, where it says, therefore, stay awake. And actually, the very last verse of our passage, where it says, watch, therefore, it's the same word. Literally, it's stay awake, therefore. There's this idea of staying awake. And, and we know that he's not speaking literally. He's not saying, you know, like, have lots of caffeine so that you never have to fall asleep. He's, he's not talking about physical sleep. He's talking about a different phenomenon. He's saying that we need to be aware of the danger of us slowly falling asleep to the reality of Christ's return. We need to be aware that there's going to be this pressure that's gentle but real that will be slowly pushing us to start living as if none of that is true. And if this is all there is, and Christ's return is never going to take place. And so when he's calling us to stay awake, he's actually calling us to, to resist. To recognize that there are pressures being placed upon us in this life that will lead us, if we are not careful, to forgetfulness. I don't know if you ever watch, um, like, spy movies or TV shows. If you have, then you've probably seen a, a scene like this where, you know, some captured good guy has, is, like, tied to a chair, put in front of these massive screens. Their eyes are taped open, and, and they see all of these images, and they hear all these messages like, you are a bad guy, you are a bad guy, you love Hitler, or whatever it is, stuff like that. And the idea is that over and over again, when they hear it, suddenly they're going to be changed and brainwashed into becoming some evil person. I hope you've seen a scene like that. If not, they do exist. And, and I don't think that's probably how brainwash actually works, but underneath this, I think, is a true idea, and that is when we hear the same things over and over and over again, when our reality is shaped by only seeing certain things over and over and over again, it begins to shape our very reality and how we see things. And I want to suggest that is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he warns us and he calls us to stay awake. Right now, have you thought about just how much we're being barraged by a couple of messages? In some ways, I think the simplest way of saying it is we are being told again and again that your worth is that you are a producer and your happiness is that you are a consumer. In so many ways, in, in the way that our lives are constructed, in the way that we speak with people, in all of the things that we're seeing on the screens again and again, whether it's in ads, whether it's games, whether it's stories, again and again, we're beset with these messages. You're a producer, you're a consumer. You're a producer, you're a consumer. When we go to school, what are we told? That we want to get good grades. Why are we getting good grades? Is it so that we can develop virtue? Is it so that we can have a better sense of what is beautiful and, and delight in life more? No, we get good grades so we can get into a good college. And college isn't meant to develop virtue. College is meant to make us a good worker so we can have a productive life. If you are asked, how was your day? How often do you answer, oh, it was a good day. I was, felt pretty productive. We, we, we've learned to think that being productive is what gives us 
worth. And meanwhile, the dream is to consume. You can get this house. You can get this car. You can binge on Netflix. You can do all of these things, eat well, all these things again and again with ads, with the autoplay feature of everything. We are told to consume, consume, consume. This is the message that our eyes are taped open to seeing repeatedly, that that you can be a great consumer and life is awesome. You can be a great producer and life is awesome as a consumer. And what is omitted is any discussion of meaning, any discussion of purpose, of things like beauty and virtue. What is omitted is any, any thought of death. We don't talk about death. In fact, we'd rather not see it. We'd rather have people who are dying left in hospitals and nursing homes so that we don't actually have to weigh what, what a good life might look like. And what we certainly don't ever talk about is the possibility of Jesus' return. And over time, as we are getting that again and again, don't you see how the pressure will be for us to just buy into that narrative and to fall asleep to the deeper reality, to forget this this counter story that God tells us that you're not a consumer producer. You are my child. You you are an heir of my kingdom. That is your reality. That is your future. We need to hold on to that, but if we don't, we slowly fall and forget that there is this future before us. And so Jesus says you need to stay awake. And I think part of what that means is we need to be thoughtful and aware of the different ways that our reality can be constrained if we're not careful, not by removing ourselves from the world, Jesus is very clear that he sends us into the world, but being thoughtful, being thoughtful about how we we use technology and media. Andy Crouch has written a really helpful book called The TechWise Family, and he, he speaks of what we need to start with is thinking what kind of family do we want to produce? What kind of life as an individual do we want to produce? For example, do we want to have a family or ourselves oriented around Christ's return? Well, then we need to begin with that and say, how can we construct the way our home is? Like even simple things like where is the TV, where is the computer? How can we construct the way our home is? And how can we construct the rhythms of our week so that that is encouraged and the counter-narrative is discouraged? So, for example, Andy Crouch says that that his family, he has a rule of one hour a day without screens, one day a week without screens, and one week a year without screens, so that it can encourage other things going on. The goal is not to make rules. The goal is to be intentional to think through how can we construct our lives in such a way that we are nourishing what we want to nourish. Another way I think that we can think about how to stay awake is to be intentional about not wasting our grief. It might seem like a strange way of putting it. Grief is a gift. I'm not saying suffering is a gift. Suffering has ways that God works that is good, but suffering is part of the brokenness of the world. But grief is our emotional response to that suffering, and it is a way that we connect to reality. It is helping us to understand truth. Sometimes grief, grief can be pronounced like the loss of someone we love. Sometimes grief can be kind of this low-lying sadness that I think we're feeling right now as we're feeling ongoing loss. But, but what grief is doing is it's connecting us to things and it's, it's reminding us that this is not how things should be. 
And the temptation is when we're feeling grief is just to numb it by consuming. It's to binge on Netflix or news feeds and that kind of thing so that we don't feel it. But grief can be something that instead of numbing, we can pray. Rather than trying to take it away, we can, we can lead it to God in prayer. We can use the Psalms of lament. And as we do that, it awakens us to reality as we cry out, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This is how we stay awake. Jesus says, beware of what's going on. Stay awake. And secondly, Jesus also calls us to practice resurrection. And by that I'm saying it's not just a matter of being alert. It's a matter of actually our actions. So we've already mentioned a couple times in, in the middle of our passage, Jesus contrasts the wise and the, and the wicked servants. The wise servant is one who is very clearly oriented towards his master's return. As we said, the foolish servant is someone who has seen, well, my master is really delayed and has concluded that his master is not coming back. And the, and the key difference between the two servants is what they do. The wise servant continues to fulfill his responsibilities as if the master were there, so that when the master returns, he will be rewarded. The foolish servant, on the other hand, concluding that the master is never coming back, decides to live it up. He, you know, abuses his power, beating the servants. He uses up all of the master's wine, enjoying it with his friends, because master's not coming back. And here's the thing. If the foolish servant were right... If the master had never come back, in many ways, the foolish servant would look wise, and the wise servant who kept on acting as if the master was returning would look foolish. And what Jesus is telling us in this parable is that our lives should be lived so that they only make sense if Jesus returns. Our lives should be lived in such a way so that they only make sense if Jesus returns. Think about Noah again. Do you realize how absurd Noah was looking when day after day in the middle of the wilderness on hot sunny days, miles away from any water, he's building this gigantic boat. It was absurd. It made no sense until the flood came. And in the same way, Jesus is saying our lives should be such that they might look absurd to other people. They might make no sense because the only way they make sense is when Christ returns. The only way they make sense is in light of the resurrection. This is what I mean by this idea of, of practicing resurrection, living with our lives making sense only in light of Christ's return and the resurrection. It's not, it's not my phrase. It's actually a phrase uh, of a poet by the name of Wendell Berry. And he has this wonderful poem called Manifesto, Mad Farmer and a Liberation Front that really is speaking of this, this very thing. He, he begins by actually critiquing the, the brainwashed kind of life that I was mentioning before. He says, love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay, want more of everything ready-made, be afraid to know your neighbors, and to die. This is the life we've been encouraged to live. This is the life that we're being shaped by, and, and he says that if we live in that way, our lives will be utterly predictable, and we will be manipulatable. It says, not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. But Barry says there is a different way. So, friends, he says, every day do something that won't compute. 
love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Love someone who does not deserve it. Every day do something that won't compute. That's perhaps my favorite line. He, he continues, invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. He says, expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. And he concludes with these simple words, practice resurrection. What does that look like for you? What does it look like to live your life in such a way that it makes sense, glorious sense, only in light of Christ's return, only in light of Jesus raising our bodies, only in light of life lasting beyond this moment that seems to consume so much of our attention? What does it look like to practice resurrection? I love this line, do something every day that does not compute. So, so what would that mean? I, you know, what would it look like to do something today that makes no sense? Maybe it would be, as he says, to invest in a future that we will never see, to plant a sequoia, to, to seek the kingdom of heaven, even if we don't experience the benefit right now because we know someday it will be experienced. Maybe it means to love someone who cannot love us back, knowing that we will get nothing from them in return, but that we will get from Jesus the words, well done, good and faithful servant, and so it will be all worth it. Maybe it means to be joyful even after we've considered all the facts, even as we see a world that is broken, a world that is grieving, and we grieve with it, yet to also be joyful because we know there is an ending that is coming that will be beautiful. Maybe it means to seek first the kingdom, even though no one else understands why we would do something like that. Our lives should be completely foolish to the world around us because they only make sense in light of the resurrection. Here's, here's another way of asking it. If Jesus were to return today, and he could, as you see him coming, as you looked at your life, would your life make sense in that moment? Or would you, as you, you looked at what you'd been doing with yourself, thinking, oh man, if only I had recognized this. If you knew Jesus were returning today or tomorrow, how would your life be different? Whatever that means, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about practicing resurrection, living in light of Jesus' return. Now, even as we say this, I think the temptation can be, as we're thinking about, well, what happens if Jesus comes back today to, to misunderstand the point? And that, that's why we need to get to the third instruction here, and that is that what we do needs to be sustainable. This is what gets us to the third of the sections in our passage where we have this kind of strange parable of the ten virgins, the ten girls that are probably nine or ten years old. And that time, it seems like when there was a wedding, the tradition would be to have it's kind of like almost like flower girls. You'd have a group of girls who would, usher, who would walk with the bridegroom in the nighttime, holding forth lamps, lighting the way as, as they move towards the wedding itself. 
And so Jesus speaks of these ten girls who have come to this one place waiting for the bridegroom, and they all have their lamps, and they're all waiting, and they're all waiting, and it takes longer and longer, and it's getting darker and darker, and it seems like the bridegroom is never going to come, but finally the bridegroom is about to come, and you hear the bridegroom is coming, but here's what happens. Five of them were ready. They knew that this could take a very long time, and so they packed plenty of extra oil, but five of them just thought, no, it's not going to take long, and so now they're out of oil, and so they have to quick scurry off and get oil. The other five are able to walk with the bridegroom to the wedding, and the five who weren't ready miss out. And the point that Jesus has is that his community, his church needs to be needs to be having a sustainable awakeness. They need to be ready for this to take a long time. I was reading recently about um, one of the challenges that our culture has faced in light of the pandemic. This person was saying that we have a pretty natural response to crisis. Like if a hurricane happens, a community can kind of surge with energy and everyone will work together to figure out how to defeat it and it can be a beautiful thing. And when COVID first hit, there was that same kind of impulse of people surging of who can volunteer, how can we help out, checking in with neighbors, we're in this together, we can do this. And that worked for about a month, maybe two months. And then people just got burnt out because the surge is not sustainable. And what this article was saying is the challenge is we don't know how to deal with a long-term challenge like this. And when Jesus is telling us this parable, he's saying that what he is calling us to is not a surge where we rally quickly to do something. I'll say that sometimes when I'm, like in this passage, for example, when I'm convicted of, of ways that I need to grow, my instinct can be to kind of do kind of a quick energy surge of, okay, I need to be better at this, and maybe for a little while I'm going to start trying to think more about Jesus and, just, and, and all of that. And, and, and the thing is, that's just not sustainable. This is not a sprint that Jesus is calling us to. This is long obedience in the same direction. And so as we're thinking about how do we become, how do we cultivate this, this longing for Jesus? We need to be thinking not in terms of performance, you know, momentary events, but practices. Because a quick change of desire might not be sustainable, but habits can be. Small things that we do repeatedly again and again over time can be something that allows us to continue on, to, to maintain that, that, that lamp of, of burning, of waiting, of longing. And so as, as we conclude, I'd just like to ask you to think this thing, and, and maybe, maybe you discuss it with a friend, a spouse, a family. What is one practice, one practice, something that is not hard, that's sustainable, that you might do to help cultivate an orientation to Jesus' return. It, it might be something that we were talking about before about trying to figure out how to manage your time with screens and media so that you're not clouded. It might be thinking about certain things that you do that intentionally do not make sense to the world but because they're oriented towards Jesus' return. What, what is one practice that's repeatable that you could continue on that could help shape you? And then we can talk about this together because the way that it's sustainable as we do it not on our own, but as we pray with each other, as we talk with each other, as we work towards this together, Jesus is saying you should be ready for this to take a while. 
It may be that Jesus does not come back for many years, even for many lifetimes. And so when we invest, we should invest in a long-term goal. It may be that Jesus might be quite a while still, but it also might be true that today Jesus is coming back. It, it might be true that today we hear the angels, we see Jesus. We do not know he will come without warning and all who have longed for him will rejoice. And so, and so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I invite you even now to join with me in prayer, whether it's with confession or whether it's as we are wanting to grow, asking for God's help to spend time responding to God's word in prayer, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time.